Yeah, there, uh, there's people that line up to confess to crimes for whatever reason. It's absolutely nuts. That's true, too. That is 100 percent true. And that's kind of why, like, for, for instance, like in and this will be a good transition to the Idaho case. You have a lot of folks that are saying, hey, the original timeline was between three and four. You know, that was the truth. And this four to five or four to four thirty range is a lie. And I'm like, no, that's in case somebody comes in and confesses. And they say, yeah, I did that at 345. They know that it's not the guy. It's a false confession. Uh, sure. four, four University of Idaho students lose their life. Two University of Idaho students, survivors in the house. No phone call for eight hours. It brings up a lot of conspiracy and a lot of misinformation that has been out there. If you were called to that scene, let's walk you through as if you were the CSI on scene. You get called out to a quadruple homicide. At what point of the investigation, first and foremost, do you think that they're contacting uh forensics to go out there? Well, there's a lot of things that has to happen. When the first responding officer gets there, of course, you go in and they have to check for signs of life for the fact that, you know, you get into a scene, we have to secure it. We have to make sure also that victims are deceased or, you know, so there is a potential cross-contamination and disruption of, of evidence. Once that's done, the scene is secured and the uh, investigator gets there. Now we're talking about a household that not only has multiple tenants, we have a process that before CSI can process it, we have to go get some search warrants for the mm -hmm. fact that other people either are there at the time, they may be victims or they may be witnesses, or they may have some type of, of privacy under the Fourth Amendment that we have to have a search warrant before we start processing. And so you may have five or six hours before and during that process of obtaining that search warrant before you can go in that once you determine that there's no sustainability or, or, or aid that you can give to the victims before you can start processing the scene because you do not want fruits from that poison tree by going in there processing and then someone uh, turns out to be that they're a suspect in the case and you violated their fourth amendment i know this comes up a lot some folks will say you know they had access to the victim's phones and that the parents of a victim had you know the passwords and stuff that they can give permission to law enforcement thus they don't need a warrant is that Accurate. Well, I, I, you know, when you're talking about the victims that, you know, now they, you know, if they're deceased and it's the victim's phone, that is not something that anyone else has privacy rights to. So, well, I think I think that. So, for instance, you know, we I'm not sure if you're aware, but we have spoken with Kaylee's mom a couple of times, Christy Gonzalez, and she has you know, told us about the phone and that they never had the phone, that they only had the phone records, uh, that police had that phone. And, and there was a lot of. um warrants that went out for like for instance kaylee's facebook or instagram okay. or snapchat and a lot of a lot of um questions came about was like all right well you know they have permission from the mom who uh you know would probably give permission there wouldn't be a need to get all these warrants i think that it's probably more of a cover your tail type of thing to ensure yeah, you get all those. yeah um, yeah you're talking about institutions and something separate than just what's on their phone that they look at no, right. you're you're correct that when you go out and you're going to these servers and to uh, where data is kept and maintained by corporations that, yes, uh, there are certain protocols and procedures you need to uh, uh, go out and fulfill. Used to, we could just call up uh, um, whoever the phone company was and say, hey, can you tell me whose phone number this is? And it mm -hmm. changed over the years. And, yeah. you know, and that's the, the thing about the uh, court systems and uh, certain procedures and court precedents that are set from case to case. And so now uh, our abundance of caution, absolutely get a search warrant if at all possible for the fact that you don't want to be that um, <laughs> landmark case that gets, that loses 
a case due to just doing something uh, that would have taken another 30 minutes. Yeah, 100%, especially if they're going forensically through, you know, a phone, you know, if they're going through Facebook messages, what kind of rights do the other person on the other side of those messages have, um, you know, to privacy or whatever the case may be. So I think it's always probably in the best interest of law enforcement to get a warrant, regardless of the situation. So you arrive on scene, you said that there's a lot of stuff that comes up before. One of the biggest questions in this case is that, you know, Sergeant Payne showed up at about four or five o'clock, several hours after 911 was called. And apparently he's he walked the scene. He saw the knife sheath, but apparently, according to other affidavits, that knife sheath wasn't seen. They had to be told about it. And that's been one of the biggest conspiracies. Now, me personally, I think that once the lead investigator saw the evidence that it would be collected, at what point is that evidence collected? Is it right after the uh, lead investigator sees it, or is there a certain process before it has to happen? There's going to be a process that you have to work your way into that scene. You, you mm -hmm. know, we have four different victims, so we have four independent crime scenes. Each victim is a crime scene in and of themselves. Whatever conflicts and struggle for life, interactions, DNA transfers, fingernail scrapings, all of this, each victim carries this of that during these violent struggles that and those interactions that we have potential that to be able to get it. But now we also have to work our way into how did that offender get into that residence? How did that offender leave that residence? Is there signs of forced uh, entry? Um, and uh, if not, are there signs of uh, how he uh, might have left the residence? And you have to make these choices that if you have a blood trail here or if you have uh, a, a a certain uh, thought that, okay, he went out the back of the residence versus the front of the residence. If you had to give me a choice of which way a homicide victim or perpetrator is going to leave, whichever way in the middle of the night that has the less light is one I'm going with. And is, you know, uh, so if I had a 50, 50 and I didn't have any other weight to uh, consider, then I'm going in through the front door, <laughs> you know, and uh, process myself in very carefully looking for hair, fiber, drug transfers, blood drops, and bringing all the tools in that we can't. You know, you've got uh, alternate light sources. Um, you've got your own visual eyes. You've got flashlights. There's a lot of ways as you work your way in. And then once you get to a certain area, you've got to make choices. I've got to process myself to the, the one that will have the least amount of impact on the other crime scene victims. And so... I mean, it's a long process. There's nothing easy about it. And before you enter a house or any of those things, there's, or the scene, there is a uh, person there writing down a log of everybody yes. entering and going. It is arriving. <laughs> right. <laughs> Extremely organized. A lot of things are documented to ensure the, uh, the integrity of the scene. In a situation like where, for instance, if you were to get to a room like it's been alleged that the second bedroom was blocked by one of the victims. You know, that, that was told to me by Christy Gonzalez. She stated that the person that ended up calling 911 got a phone call from one of the victims or uh, the surviving victims or both of the victims. It wasn't uh, verified if it was just one or both, but he ended up getting a call. He shows up. He couldn't get through the door because one of the bodies was blocking. He pushed it enough to kind of look in, saw what he saw, then they called 911. In a situation where you can't get into a crime scene because there's a body being blocked in the door, how, how does that be, how does that become processed? Um, what what is done in those types of situations? All right. Oh, let's address one other issue before we get to the inside of the house. Now, while the search warrant is being done and any common area that's open to the public outside the residence, you can start processing. You Don't can start looking for evidence. You can look for vehicles. You can look for blood trails. You can do you can bring in canines. You can do whatever you need to in out in the public area. But now that you've entered the residence and OK, you go up those steps, you process yourself that I have a victim here in the doorway. Uh, 
the one that's inside, of course, is also deceased. So we're going to have to process this one at the door first. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be handled here because mm -hmm. we don't want to transfer to footprints and introduce evidence into that until we get this processed here. We'll get in there to the other victim. Now, when he opened that door and looked in there, if he saw a sign of life, then, of course, we have to just, you know, uh, yeah. absolutely just step over the first victim and we go into whatever uh, will save and preserve life. And uh, yeah. But that choice didn't arise. And so, uh, but yes, we process one in the door would be my manner of processing the scene. I don't know what manner they did. Yeah, I assume, you know, when it came to the probable cause affidavit, that was one of the things that uh, it didn't mention about, or there were some question marks about Ethan's body, its location in the room. It's it specified that there had to be an autopsy done later uh, to identify his injuries. Is that because his injuries were so severe they couldn't have been determined at that time and they needed an autopsy? Or is that because if his body was the one blocking the door and it had to be moved, um, that it had to have a different process? Well, and this is meaning when I said that I was surprised at the lack of blood evidence at the Delphi case. This is what the other side of the pole is. This is what I would expect under an edge weapon that, that when you have such an incident that occurs and you have a struggle for life and you have a... Um, a victim that's in this battle and struggle, they're going to have a lot of defensive injuries. There's going to be a lot of uh, heavy staining, blood flows, and you're not going to be able to identify all those injuries. And so you're going to have a tremendous amount, and there's nothing clean about a, uh, a knife attack. It's extremely messy, and uh, it's uh, um, absolutely things that nightmares are made of. Yeah. No, 100%. And one quick question, you know, just leaving the scene real quick. In your experience, somebody with a K-Bar knife, do you think that they had ample amount of time to commit the crime solo, one person, nine to 11 minutes, go in there and dispatch four, uh, four uh, young, beautiful people? Um, I, I think so. Uh, if you, you know, we watched uh, uh, another trial, O.J. Sampson. He encountered two individuals, one of them highly trained that was uh, – uh, into martial arts uh, mm -hmm. if he is the offender whoever the offender was was able to do it in a public section near a sidewalk and it not be discovered for some time and so uh, that's two individuals but for this offender eight to nine minutes yes um, because you know it would be tight he would you know i fought um, three individuals one time there was four of us in the fight there was three on one and we fought for 12 minutes and we were uh four uh pretty um, uh, bloodied individuals at the end of that. Um, but um, uh, can you fight that long? Yes, it's possible. Now, I was <laughs> in my 20s then. Um, you fight me now, I, I've got about 30 seconds and that's it. Uh, <laughs> 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 but but back in those days, and you look at an individual that's trained, that's an athlete, yes, uh, uh, he may be able to. And that may be what uh, allowed the other victims to survive, that he was spent, you know. Yeah. Because nine minutes is uh, is a long time, guys. No, yeah, it definitely is. What do you got, Hyman? I was gonna say, um, wasn't the in China the subway attacks? Weren't they knife attacks? Didn't the guy like stab like twenty six people or something like that at one point in like five ten minutes? Yeah, yeah. The knife is a very quick weapon. Yeah. A lot of folks don't think you know how fast it could be because they they assume you know. A, a gun is the fastest way to, you know, uh, go in there and commit a crime like this. Yeah. Which yeah. I I'd rather mean, face a gun than a knife, guys. You rather what? I'd rather face a gun and a knife. Yeah. I mean, you got a person that's behind that trigger has to know how to use it, too. Yeah. When, when it comes down to the, the knife sheath, if it wasn't for the knife sheath, um, do you think they would uh, find out what kind of knife it was to begin with? There's a good 
because there's a lot of telltale signs that whenever you use some type of edge weapon, you can tell length of the blade uh, from certain injuries, the width, thickness, if it has any type of uh, uh, like the back uh, cut blade uh, for, you know, I don't know what type of K-bar this was. If it has certain characteristics, plus if he had contact with any of the bedding material or the clothing, that you can get an outline of that knife almost, you know, I've seen it where it looks like you draw the picture of it, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, of the blade itself or of the, and you may have after those first injuries that the uh, guard on the knife, that if it comes in contact with clothing, you'll be able to see the outline of that guard either on skin or on clothing once it's processed. So there's a lot of telltale signs from edge weapons that can identify characteristics of that knife from the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the guard to uh, handles to, even the outline of the blade. Speaking of the the guard on the knife, if the suspect is you know putting so much force behind the his the you know the stabbing itself, wouldn't that guard leave a bruise on on his hand? Very possible. If he hits bone or something, or if he misses and he hits a uh, a headboard or he hits something, absolutely. Uh, and they can break. You know, knives break. I've yes. seen them break. Yeah, I was going to ask. Can you you know if there was some metal fragments in one of the uh, the victim's bodies? Is there a way to tell from the metal composition? of where it was made and and try to find a manufacturer for it that way? I would expect so because, like I said, you know, the labs and what they can do with some of the equipment and technologies out there now that uh, they could uh, pretty well, you know, tell a lot of different things. Uh, did it come from what class of iron ore or wherever? Um, you know, it's you see that stuff and uh, it's in the movies. And if it's in the movies, there's some <laughs> uh, basis of truth behind it, guys. It really is. 100%. What about... What about if you can, can you tell on a stabbing victim if the uh, offender was left or right-handed? You Sometimes it depends. Now, if you can place the victim and then you can place the offender and, and you may have, because there's a lot of things that happen in the blood pattern analysis. Uh, through a struggle, you're going to have motions of hands and you're going to have what is called cast off, uh, not only from the weapon, but from the hand. You'll have cast off from the uh, uh, the uh, victims also that are fighting defensive injuries and um, and if you can place that offender in a face to face confrontation and then you see what side of the body that the victim's uh, injuries are on then of course yes it's easy to identify and you may also be able to see that you know if all the cast off if you have two individuals faced off and all the cast off is to the right of one offender and to the left of the other then that means that, uh, and you can place where the victim is due to that they're laying there. Then we know that the, uh, the all the cast off came from and to the right. Then he's right-handed. See what I'm trying mm. to say there? C- can you tell if there is a, um, like, for instance, in this case, we have four victims, right, in two different rooms. If two offenders went into that room with two similar knives, would you be able to tell that the same offender just based on their wounds, if it was the same offender, if there was two offenders? There's Sometimes you might even have the shadowing effect, whereas if there are more than one offender, and you, you say a lot of it with high-velocity bus batter, when um, uh, you uh, may have someone that shoots someone, and the back spatter will create a shadow, that there's an absence mm-hmm. of blood behind them. And so mm-hmm. you could have the same thing, that if you have a fight going over here and you have a blood cast-off pattern, and then all of a sudden there's a void, and then it starts up again, and you have this repeated that there may have been someone standing over there. And if it's not mm-hmm. another victim, it can be another offender. And so we don't know, but the uh, 
of what's in that crime scene, but there's so much to tell. And blood pattern analysis is absolutely fascinating. And um, uh, it can tell you so much the story of what went on in those rooms. You know, just looking at the, so you said that you would arrive first and you would look at the outside of the building. Outside of the back of the, uh, what was suspected to be Xana's bedroom was what looked like blood coming down onto the foundation. Just kind of seeing that from the outside without looking inside. What what do you, what would that tell you about that scene? Seeing the blood coming out like that? Well, of course, the first question, is that blood? And if so, yeah. who's on the other side of that wall? If, if that was, and I've seen those pictures, and that's a tremendous amount. Um, the floor seal evidently wasn't sealed very well for it to pass under, you know, because most flooring and houses, you, you normally wouldn't have that. You wouldn't expect that. But uh, yeah. I was surprised to see it. Yeah, yeah no, I was. It usually has like a flashing between the, the, the wall itself and the and the concrete itself. So it's kind of, it's weird to see it actually seep out. And if it did, there was a, a lot of blood coming does so by seeing that does that say to you that there's a body in close proximity or can there be a body a, a little bit further away in it no i, I would think that yes this is where one of them was within just a foot or two good deal good deal yeah that's kind of what i was thinking as well you know kind of looking at that scene i was like i don't think that that person was and they sustained an injury at a low point for the fact that for that amount of blood you almost have to totally take a lot of blood out of that victim and it has to be injuries that will allow that blood flow it's not like if you're laying on your back and you get a, a, a high point center chest there's going to be very little blood flow everything's just going to once the heart stops everything's just going to settle but if you have injuries to lower or back or to the chest face down that allows all that blood to pool outside the body that's where you get all this massive blood flow yeah that makes sense so apparently you know looking at the probable cause affidavit and you know they're using the dna on the sheath as evidence against Koberger. but that tells me is that there isn't any other dna evidence underneath the fingernails or or anywhere else because i would assume that that dna would have been used to uh, arrest Brian Koberger. So just kind of, you know, looking at it from that angle, then it appears that they don't have that. Are you surprised by the fact that there's a lack of DNA evidence from a, from a perp? Lacard's principle of, of exchange, absolutely. Uh, once again, just like with Adelphi, I expect it's there. It's just not been discovered for the fact that you have four violent encounters. You have a man that possibly may have injured himself and you would have that DNA mixture if he had cut himself because that's quite often that does occur that, you know, during the struggle, you know, you, you may throw a hand up and they may uh, deflect your arm and you may cut yourself. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen or we don't know of it. It may have happened, but they haven't uh, uh, released that information yet. That I would expect that there was and the lack of DNA shows that there is a tremendous amount of planning to make sure that we don't have that transfer. Yeah. From what I was told that this person was very intelligent, that the law enforcement officers were aware of how intelligent he was, you know, from details that I have uncovered. Uh, basically, it is suspected that the uh, perpetrator opened the back sliding glass door and never touched it again in efforts to not leave DNA behind. You know, I thought that when you look at where the position of, of Dylan's bedroom, it is right across from the uh, kitchen and right next to the stairs that are going up. If Brian Koberger isn't familiar with that area, even if he's, you know, visually seeing that stalking and looking, that door is invisible from uh, unless you go into the backyard and stand in front of that glass door. It's kind of hard to see uh, that door where Dylan's bedroom is. If if the intent was to not touch anything as much as little as possible, if he saw that door and he thought it was a closet door, I can see why he wouldn't try to open it. You know, if he's not you know, if he thinks it's a closet. He's going to move up to the top and then move around. He hears something. 
my theory is that he's driving around and that Xana ordered a DoorDash. And that given the fact that, you know, the location of her house is kind of tricky to find, she probably left some sort of indicator on, maybe a light outside, a light inside to, you know, inform the DoorDasher this is where the location is at. We see that after four o'clock is when Brian Koberger starts to, you know, at least his driving starts to be a little bit erratic. If it be allegedly Brian Koberger, we know at four o'clock is when Xana supposedly receives the DoorDash. At 405 is when uh, the white Elantra stops, does this weird turn at a uh, clean apartment 502, then does a attempts to either stop or do a turnaround in front of the victim's residence. Doesn't do, doesn't successfully do that. Goes further, does a three point turn at the King and Queen Road residence and then comes back all the way around. And when he comes back around, if the audio of that Linda Lane footage is accurate, it sounds like he hits the horn at 407, which tells me he's probably grabbing a bag from his le- uh, from his passenger seat, getting you know prepared to go in and he hit the horn on accident. But you can tell at that moment things got real for this guy and he was making tremendous amount of mistakes. I think he walked in. He went upstairs. He left the back sliding glass door. I think Xana may have felt the draft coming in. Walked out there, said, I think somebody's here, sees the door, turns around, walks back to where her boyfriend is, sleeping already, or still sleeping. And before she can alert him, she is surprised from behind. And then there's a struggle there with Ethan. And that's kind of my thoughts as far as where everything is at and how it looks. And and from my understanding as well, both scenes were pretty much contained to the bedrooms, meaning there wasn't a lot of blood going back and forth between the scenes. For somebody to go in there and commit a crime like this and not get blood on their feet, I would assume, are you surprised that there isn't some sort of evidence between the rooms? Well, it depends on how where the injuries were. If he's on the bed and he's kneeling or laying on the bed, he's jumped on them and he's on his knees and the fight is in that on those first two upstairs. I don't know. And it's one thing when you're fighting standing up and you have a mobile victim. It's a different thing when you are fighting a victim that's on their back and you may be attacked by another victim from the side flanking that's on that bed. You're on your knees. So anything that happened, and I'm just speculating that if he went in and surprised the two victims in the bed upstairs first and that confrontation never got to the floor, then I wouldn't expect that there would be a lot. We do know that there was blood prints in front of Dylan's door, and this is where there are victims that are upright and mobile. And now we have transfers. We have shoe patterns that this law, that law enforcement says that where she said he was at, we have shoe prints. And so now uh, that's supporting evidence of uh, that uh, someone in that room that there was an encounter uh, that he encountered, say, whoever the victim in the door was, that they're bleeding. He had to step over and go find the other one. And now we have to come back through that victim that's at the door. See what I'm saying? But it's just one print, and it's over here in this area by where Dylan's bedroom is. The killer would have had to have walked down this hall and through this living area and just to leave this one spot. Now, there's one that's they got. It may There may be others. They just may not be cleared or they were contaminated or they were, there's a lot of things that could have happened to those prints and whatever the material was that he was during the transfer, because you can have oversaturation from a print, but eventually you're going to have one that is at almost pristine transfer that right. you start off extremely messy and you can't tell anything other than it's a blob. But mm-hmm. as you get less and less, there's going to be one that stands out that says, this is our best one. And gotcha. is that the spot? I don't know. The probable cause affidavit states that the uh, footprint was found at the second go through. Uh, while utilizing amino black. What what does that mean? It's just another one of the uh, tests uh, uh, that you test and, and, and 
blood pattern analysis of uh, uh, applying chemicals that interact with blood. Um, uh-huh. Oh, I have it at the lab. I have some amido black myself, but it's just the same with luminol. Not the same. It's a different chemical that has a uh, reaction that you don't need alternate light sources to see the reaction. It's just a different processing agent. And um, But um, anyone that wants to look at these things, you can go to, um, I order all my chemicals from Searchy. And so you go on there and you see all these presumptive blood tests and you can see um, certain chemicals used to enhance alternate light sources. There's so much things that can uh, uh, bring where things can be collected and seen uh, due to chemical reactions of processing a scene. And each CSI guy has to make the choice, what's going to give me the best results on this particular um, print? So they chose amino black. So they would have to visually be able to see it, right? They're not just putting amino black on the floor and seeing if anything pops. Yeah, they, they would have had something that said, oh, there's something here. Yeah, because that was one of the biggest concerns was that that print wasn't visible, you know, that they had to utilize some sort of uh, technology to bring it up. And, you know, it sounds like it was visible and it would have had to have been visible for them to apply it to, to the area. It is suspected that the perpetrator may have worn some Dickies work pant coveralls. Are, are you familiar with those type of that type of material? And if so, like how how protective could that be for you know for one for the perpetrator not to leave DNA behind, and also for him not to get DNA from the victims? I did some testing on that of of, of removal of uh, clothing to uh, try to uh, determine how quick that if you committed and you had to transfer. Once again, Mrs. Steve and I, we went out and uh, we interacted and threw uh, synthetic blood on each other, trying to replicate and how protective each layer would be. And uh, and we used Tyvek uh, painter suits, but uh, the Dickies outerwear would probably, you know, be something along those lines. Um, And and it could, you know, um, do I think it was 100% effective? Probably not. But the more layers he put on, the more likely he would have uh, minimized that by the time he got to his vehicle, he took that outer layer off, took off a layer of gloves um, and um, so that he wouldn't have any type of transfer. And then if he had a different pair of shoes, then, but that takes planning. And that takes a highly intelligent, motivated, mission-oriented individual that has a plan that I'm going to commit whatever homicide I'm going to commit and right. how I'm going to get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you're talking about an animal that this monster of pre-planning, stalking, carrying out um, uh, is, like I said, this is something made uh, for the movies. So if, if it wasn't Brian Coburger, and who would you suspect, what, what kind of person would you have suspected this to have committed this crime? I mean, obviously, I, I personally don't think some drunk college kid could have gone in there, committed this crime, and not leave DNA behind. I don't think an ex-boyfriend, you know, in a crime of passion would have committed a crime without leaving DNA behind. Uh, it seems like it's somebody very skilled, somebody who's maybe done this before. What are your thoughts? We look at the residents. It, we know it's not someone hitchhiking through on the interstate system that's at the edge of town that is hunting food, a vehicle, uh, some type of enrichment of his life just to get to the next town or or some type of serial offender that's doing it for whatever fantasy fed. We're looking at a, a resident that was chosen that's in the middle of surrounded by all different types of, of housing. And so I would be looking for someone that absolutely they were targeted. Someone in this house was targeted. Now I've got to determine which one of them was targeted mm. and why. And, uh, and I believe that will be the case. Do, do when, <clears throat> when processing a crime scene, 
uh, when it comes down to the doors and the doorknobs, would they be removed and, and then put as evidence or would they just be swabbed? I would prefer uh, that if I can, that if I see something or if I process it and, and anytime you process, say that you're processing a doorknob and you're putting powder. In this case, if you, if you've had blood stains and things, um, absolutely, you know, we're going to try to take that doorknob. Um, if it's something that doesn't appear to have any blood stain and we processed it with whatever type of chemicals to see that, no, we don't have this. And we have to make decisions. Um, do we use powder? Do we use a chemical? Once again, you have to weigh what am I processing and uh, what evidence is supporting that he touched this doorknob? And did he touch it on the way in? If the door, you know, because going up and we, we don't know the victimology of the, the girls on the top floor. Did they, did everyone in that residence normally keep their doors closed? If so, that you may be able to that before any introduction of blood to the crime, he had to open that door. So to open that door, you may at, on the outside of that door handle, oh yeah, I'm just going to uh, process this with powder. But then we have to look at that when he was leaving that bloody crime scene, did he pull the door shut behind him? Mm-hmm. And then if we did that, now we've got to determine what we're going to do with this. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with that first responding officer. How did you find this door? Was it open? Was it closed? And uh, there's so much stuff to... Um, to determine, evaluate, and decisions to be made. When it comes back to the sheath, though, there was DNA found inside of the button. According to the defense, that sheath was face down underneath the body, and I was partially underneath the body and underneath the comforter. I'm assuming that there was probably a lot of blood in that area, given the nature of the crime. Is it possible that that sheath had more DNA? And if it was like transfer DNA and it got covered in blood, would that overcome it or would you be able to pull that out? Regarding the sheath, I think the sheath is there due to the fact that he is wearing layers. He's wearing something like at Dickie's that he doesn't have a belt to put mm-hmm. that knife in. And he has it in hand. And during that process, and if he has it in hand, then we have to uh, do so that he uh, had some type of gloves on because you would have more DNA from a naked hand that's holding a sheath during an encounter or even during the transport. Uh, we don't have all this DNA transfer, touch DNA on this sheath. So how is that possible? And then it's only limited to inside those buttons. Looking in hindsight and thinking about what would protect that sheath from DNA, what would allow that uh, sheath not to be uh, on his person, such as in a belt, because how many times do we see people walking the street with a knife, that sheath, and it's on their belt? You don't see people walking around the street with knives in their hands carrying the sheath. And the only reason that you would, and if not to leave DNA, you have to have some type of protective gloves on. And why did he fail? Uh, did he absolutely clean that sheath? And what did he clean it with uh, that wouldn't have DNA on it? Because if it's something from his home environment, it had to be clean at some point. They got a video of him buying a bunch of supplies in different places. So he may have, you know, bought these supplies and, you know, never touched them. I mean, I, I don't know, until, until it was time to clean these items and or, you know, get down to the planning aspect of it. I believe that he had purchased the coveralls according to what we have seen, like within a couple of, or what's been disclosed. And I don't know how true it is or how, how not true it is. It's been in the, uh, I think it was like, maybe it was Dateline that said it, that in the days leading up to the murders is when they have a receipt for a Dickies tag that he purchased those Dickies clothing. I, I think that would make sense because if he had it in his home, there would be an opportunity for DNA to get all over it, thus transfer it back. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to the to the Dickies, uh, I said earlier that they're kind of they're dame resistant, right? And they're also they're a little bit harder to puncture, I believe, than than regular material, right? Yeah, so, I would, yes, uh, they're more of a quarter. Some of them are. I don't know which ones he bought. Um, I think that there may be different materials they use. I like I said, I don't know what brand. I I, I know what brand, but I just don't know. 
of which of the type of material. Yeah, I, mean, I own I own dickies. I used to wear a lot of dickies, actually, but I remember they, they would last forever. I mean, they would last forever. They, you know, they would puncture, but it wouldn't. It don't, you know how like you know other material you puncture and they'll run after a while real fast. Now, these will puncture. They'll stay there for a while and they wouldn't run. Yeah, it's very high durable stuff. When it comes to the car, though, so we're you know the biggest concern or the biggest question that a lot of folks have is that there was no DNA from the victims inside of Zelantra. And we can probably assume that that thing was taken piece by piece apart. How surprised were you when when that information came out? I, I'm I'm still surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this and 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 I'm absolutely surprised. And once again, you have to say that this is not a crime. That if he is the offender and that is his vehicle, and he went from a crime scene and was able to leave within that time frame, his abilities and his structures and his thought process processes to do that means that. We prepped a vehicle, the interior of, and then we mm -hmm. prepped ourselves to be able to either change out our first layer, get in a vehicle that has protective measures, go to a safe area, clean our vehicle, transfer everything back out, and um, then um, within a few hours, go back to our residence with uh, no DNA um, in, the res in the vehicle and um, rely upon repeated uh, cleaning of that. Did I miss something? Did I miss something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was, I was surprised as well. You know, it was something that I thought was going to be there was going to be something there. I didn't think there was any absolute way that he wasn't going to be able to overcome that. But then, you know, I went back and I started to read the probable cause affidavit again. And it mentions his long trip around after the murders that gets him to Pullman around 536. And I was wondering myself, you know, why take that route? Even if you're going to go hide something and, and put it out there somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you're still taking a very long route. And then I realized, well, he turned his phone off during the commission of the crime. He did, he turned it off in Pullman. He turned it on outside of the radius in which he may have known that law enforcement were going to look at. And or maybe perhaps he pulled up, you know, the towers for that area. And when he got out of a certain distance, he, he turned his phone on. Regardless, it worked. Honestly, if it wasn't for the knife sheath, based on what the uh, the fact that they had to use an IgG uh, to get him tells me that they had no idea it was him at that point. And so his his actions work. But my things are, my, my thought is he takes this long trip because law enforcement is going to say, all right, we have a white vehicle without a front license plate driving around suspiciously between four, four o'clock and 420. You know, if this vehicle left town and it headed towards Blaine, Idaho, it would have been there within a certain amount of time. If it left to Genesee, if it left to Pullman, it would be there within a certain amount of time. And that law enforcement officers would be surveilling you know, cameras for that specific time to see if a vehicle's coming in. So he took a long trip that would take longer than it would be assumed that law enforcement would would search those cameras. And if and if he went to that extent, you know, just so that he doesn't get caught on cameras pulling into Pullman, I mean, he must have gone to a great extent everywhere else. I agree. You know, so I, I just think that that this guy is, you know, I think, and that's what the motive is. You know, my my opinion is, you know, I think the house is the motive. You know. It, it, when you look at what was going on in Koberger's life at the time, he, he had lost the majority of his jobs. He had lost his security job while he was at the sales. Um, he had, there was a resignation letter that was produced. And on the resignation letter, it stated that he was aware that he understood had he not resigned, that termination could be a uh, an end result of his uh, employment there, meaning that you know, if he didn't quit, they were going to fire him. So he, he had different situations throughout his life. I think in high school, he got kicked out of a law enforcement class. And although there's not much to say where or why, but he was put in a classroom without females. And then you have the only place where he seemed to have thrived was, was DeSales University. However, he was there during the pandemic and a bunch of those courses were online. So he wasn't there personally. And then he, he, he gets this, you know, 
he gets this uh, recommendation for the PhD program. So, you know, he's thinking he's the big fish. He goes out to a rural area. You know, we find out that there is an email in April from um, Pullman Chief uh, Jenkins, a correspondence between him and Brian Koberger referencing an interview they had for his uh, uh, possible position as an intern police officer within their department. And we know that he applied in the fall. So if he didn't, you know, if he applied in the spring and had to apply in the fall, that kind of tells me he didn't get it probably because of his background that he had. And then he goes to WSU, apparently has a bunch of problems with female students there, has problems with a certain professor, ends up getting an altercations and gets kicked out. You know, I think that, oh, I forgot to mention if, you know, what Dateline and NBC are saying are accurate, that they have a receipt for a K-Bar knife in April, the same month that I'm assuming he's probably getting turned down as for the intern you know, job as a police officer. All these things are going negative in his life. The school is turning him away. The police department's turning him away. So he wants to have some sort of revenge um, in the area, so to speak. But he's smart enough to know that if he commits this crime against any of the people that he really probably wants to commit this crime towards, that it would come back to him. So he chooses somewhere else, you know, he had supposedly this one guy that was friends with him came out and started talking. You know, they had text messages where Brian Cooper stated that he wanted to be involved in a high profile case, stated that he wanted to be the detective to, to solve it, but that that it was going to be very difficult for him to be in those positions. So I'm thinking he really did want to get involved in a high profile case. And, you know, there's three roles, police officer, the victim or the perpetrator. I don't think he wanted to be the other two. You know, he goes out there, he finds the house with the biggest party that will attract national attention. And. And then he follows him. You know, I think he chooses that house because of the traffic that's in and out of there. He had access to probably some police information, may have known that there was going to be a, uh, a, a force out there that was to trying to deter underage drinking. We know that because there's the Banfield, you know, police officers that had stopped out with those guys in, in the Banfield. And, you know, I think that was going to be a deterioration of drinking, which was going to stop the parties as well. So he would have known that possibly. So, you know, I, I think it all lines up, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that maybe perhaps the you know, the house indeed was the target to create a bigger crime. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he wanted is his whole purpose to create fear in the community. You know, what was his driving uh, uh, motivation for this crime? Uh, was it specifically one victim or is there more to it that he wanted to be a, a serial offender that sort of like what BTK did to uh, Wichita? Yeah. That, uh, uh, you you start off and you do this and was that part of his purpose? We don't really know yet, but there is that part and he's a failure. But the scary part is, is that there's others out there that are just as evil as he is that are successful at this and have victims out there that we may or may not even know about. In your opinion, do you think this is the first, the first uh, offense for this person? I think uh, he has other crimes. Um, are there other homicides? Um, I don't know, but I, he would have other crimes that are supporting of his mental, uh, you know, that uh, there's certain crimes of, as far as that. He likes to take late night drives. Who are the right. other victims? What areas did he uh, visit? Where did he take these late night drives? Is he one of these individuals that parks his vehicle and goes through neighborhoods, peeping Tom type of offender? Uh, is he uh, stalking other victims on these late night drives of these um, and looking for potential victims that are walking down streets, hitchhikers, some of the uh, human trafficking victims, things of that nature, because there's only, I love working the night shift from that morning watch from midnight to early mornings, because there's a certain type of individuals out there. Some of them are extremely hardworking people, and that's the job that they work and the shift that they work. But there are some very odd <laughs> individuals that 
uh, frequent that night because they'll go in these neighborhoods and they are these peeping Tom stalker type of individuals. They'll go into a house, break into a residence and stand at the foot of the bed until the victim wakes up. I mean, what yeah. kind of nut does that take? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there are definitely some some crazies that are out. You said, Steve, you said that um, the crime itself, it looked like it was planned really, really, really good. And you, you see that for me, I, I, I see if there was planned, you know, months or when, uh, whatever, whatever time it took, there will be more evidence, right, of him the, making the plans, especially in those 51 terabytes that they have, right, on, on his computer. You think the pop- possibility of there being plans on there is um, real good? I think they have uh, of, of, of his digital footprint and uh, of the computers and uh, what other devices does he have? What's in his purchase history? Um, does he know that they're going to be doing certain things? And um, does he deliberately stay away from it? Because we're talking about a guy that's that if I was in the room with him, he's absolutely far more intelligent than I, you know, I mean, you know, he's, he, he's going getting the highest level of, of, of education that, you know, only a, a small percentage of, of, of people can achieve. And, um, uh, and he knows what law enforcement is going to be looking for and he's prepping for that. And so would he create a digital trail or would he do a lot of it of uh, old school of uh, pen and paper and, and uh, just drawing it out, uh, you know, I think um, with uh, the Golden State uh, uh, offender that when he was, uh, uh, he did a lot of artwork and drawings, mm-hmm. um, but uh, that was pre-computer and he just did it out of necessity. But yeah. uh, uh, would uh, Koberger realize that, yes, this is how they're going to track me, is that if I do anything digitally, so therefore I have to stay away from it. But still, he underestimated Law enforcement, and it's brilliant how they came to this and started the camera canvas and acquiring all that digital, something that uh, will play huge roles in the future as we get more and more cameras out there, rings and things, that uh, it, they will play an important part. And they'll be able to use this case, Idaho, in so many ways about how to go out there and acquire those uh, uh, camera and uh, create that uh, roadmap of who's on the road, when, what intersection did they, you know, I think they did the same thing in the Boston bombers that they used those cameras from corner to corner and was able to track those uh, yeah. brothers. Yeah. Uh, when, in this case, it, does it, does it amaze you the fact that the, the roommates didn't hear uh, the commotion happening in the, the rooms? What was the normal? And that's the thing. We don't know what the normal activity of a college campus and, uh, and uh, the normal things that occurred in its house. Um, I don't know what the level of activity was and what time, you know, if you're getting home at the times they got and you're still ordering food at four o'clock, that this isn't the first time that's ever occurred. And so we have activities of what went on. Uh, now, I'm speculating on that, but I would expect that or not that, you know, normal sleep patterns, everyone has them. And when you're in college or otherwise that you're in this type of environment, what was their normal weekend patterns? And if it's within that parameters, uh, what, you know. Uh, the one witness says, I thought they were up, upstairs playing with a dog. Yeah. And then um, they hear those other voices. And, you know, there's a lot of oddities about why certain things weren't discovered. But, you know, I'm not going to be blaming other survivors for yeah. um, 
whatever happened, you know, they're very lucky that they survived. Danny, you're on. So a couple of questions, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the conspiracy is out there is that there's some sort of drugs related and things of that nature. Now I know that based on the probable cause affidavit and a lot of the uh, court documents that all of the phones were digitally downloaded. Um, wouldn't there be some sort of evidence of that com communication for, you know, some sort of drug stuff. And I mean, I, I just feel like there would have been some sort of evidence on that phone and that would have been crossed out pretty quickly. Is, is that accurate? Not only that, but you'd have the camera activities, you know, they, they were able to track him. You know, you're the, uh, the worst drug dealer in the world. If all you've got coming to your house is someone delivering food. That is true. I, I didn't think about that. Yeah. The only person that's coming up to the house is delivering food. That, that, that is very true. Is there a way a person can erase everything off of their phone that they can't be found? within a specific amount of time? I don't believe so. I mean, you know, I can barely, <laughs> you know, when you go on a computer, you know, you find out that, yes, you can go in there and delete, but no, people that know how can find what's out there because now we have the cloud base and you have all this other stuff. And um, and so um, I um, absolutely, um, when it comes to all this Google stuff and these computers and these devices, every time I get accustomed to using a device, uh, Mrs. Steve goes and buys me a new one and I'm, as lost as last year's Easter egg uh, of trying to figure it out the next week. So, so trying to delete all the information, I don't think it's possible because gotcha. there's so many apps out there that store your information, that you're in constant contact, that you have an app on your phone and you don't know that it's sending out information or what information it's sending or tracking and how you're linked up with everybody else. That yeah, makes sense. What's it called? Uh, oh, I was going to ask you, Steve, knowing, you know, there's a lot of, um, talk that the house itself was a party house. How much harder does it make it for you know uh, CSI to to assess the whole crime scene? Well, it, it, it's extremely difficult because you got so much DNA there. But that the the DNA that we have to identify with is what is within the crime scene itself. Some of the common areas, like at the kitchen sink or in the bathroom downstairs, at in the sink and stuff, you may be able to say that oh, anyone's DNA there is you know. Easily, the um, there's excuses of why it could be there, mm. but on the shape on the sheath under the victim is not something of a party goer. Yeah. Um, or if you have a, a a hair or a fiber or any type of cross contamination from the scene to the victim or suspect, that uh, those are the things that we have to look for. Um, the most recent outer layer um, uh, type of evidence. When it comes to a crime scene and you have, all right, so in the defense in the Brian Kupiger case, they're claiming that there are two unknown DNA samples that are somewhere in the area near where the two of the bodies were located. And they were asking the question if those things were processed and or if there was any workup on those. Now, I know that there's some rules with the IgG as far as, you know, FBI involvement and how they can get involved. But is there like a specific maybe pecking order as far as how DNA is processed as far as importance? Like if you find the DNA on, on, the, on a sheath and then you find DNA on a, on a, on a shelf, you know, 20 feet away in the same room, but in the opposite corner, you know, do you process or try to test that DNA first before moving on to maybe some DNA that is a little bit further out? You know, and, and that's stuff else about that. Um, um, the way that they can, analyzing the quickness of the return of the results is absolutely amazing because uh, there was a kidnapping, I think happened in Tennessee and off a of flip-flop, they were able to identify the offender within 48 hours or something that happened last year. So, but yes, the pecking order of how DNA is that the more likely it's involved that, okay, you get there and you have a knife sheath under the victim. And then you have a knife sheath in a back closet on a top shelf. Mm -hmm. Which one do we process first? The closer it's to the scene, the more likely it has involvement with is the pecking order all the way out. 
And if you have other bloodstained items, those things with DNA will be tested or attempted to be tested to lift DNA with things that can be linked to the activities of that that occurred that night. Good deal. Yeah, that was one of the questions that I had and I was trying to, you know, I read the, the DOJ policy and apparently if there's some sort of lead or if there's um, any kind of lead that they can't get involved, basically. And it makes sense. I mean, if you have a lead on somebody, why go run their family tree, just take their DNA from the trash and try to see if it matches? You know what I mean? Oh, you're talking about that. I thought, I, I, think you was, I thought you were talking about what type of evidence to be processed first. But yes, um, also for the, um, um, I was surprised that, um, um, that there is an issue about that DNA. And the courts will have to probably settle that of how they're going to approach uh, some of the processes that was used by the FBI and these other agencies in determining that DNA. Like I said, that's something that we never faced years ago, but now there's a DNA, uh, um, what is it, 23andMe and all this other stuff, um, all these, they, that they have certain uh, protocols of can you even use it to identify in criminal activities. So we just have to see where it's going to go. Yeah, you know, for me, I don't understand the argument, to be honest with you, you know, from the defense's side. Their that IgG report or workup isn't used as evidence against Goldberger. So what they're trying to do is enter evidence that's not being used so they can throw it out. I mean, it's not going to have an effect on the other DNA that's out there or the, the DNA on the sheath or the, the warrant that was obtained to match Goldberger's DNA to it. So I, I just kind of seem to think that is a point. I see it's a nothing burger. I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of folks that are like, oh, you would want to know, you know, all the evidence against you. And I was like, you know, I, I understand that. I get that. But there are certain things that happen during an investigation. You know, somebody says that they don't want to testify. They don't want to, you know, talk. They just kind of point you in a direction. Well, you still got to build your case. And if you go and, you know, build the case the appropriate way um, based, you know, you, you don't ever have to use that information. And so that's kind of where I'm at on that. Uh, we're going to be asking some questions real quick before we uh, head on out of here. If you have any questions, leave them in the comments section. Why would a person take his own car registered to himself to a crime scene? On top of that, get caught on cameras. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he uh, underestimated the amount of cameras and um, their ability to identify uh, that vehicle. Um, people make mistakes. Criminals try to, uh, you know, it, it happens every day that uh, the uh, uh, they think they're smart and, and they are in certain cases, but uh, there's no such thing as a perfect crime. And um, if you take a tag off another vehicle and place it on your vehicle, what tag rigger is going to catch you? And, um, you know, and then you get stopped for that and you're uh, dressed up as a uh, um, serial offender 101. Um, you're wearing gloves and masks and your car is decked out with uh, protective materials that, uh, you know, there's certain risks. But, um, um, yeah, I understand your point. Um but he was able to escape uh, with his registered car for, what, 60 days? You know, for me on this question, and then I'll go to you, Jaime, I don't understand, honestly, the taking somebody else's car avenue is a smarter way of getting away with a crime. You know, first and foremost, we got to figure out, you know, where is he getting this car? Is he stealing it? Now he has to get, you know, out of two crimes, the murder and the theft of the vehicle. Is he renting it? Well, there's going to be some sort of documentation that the vehicle was rented. And, you know, I'm pretty sure law enforcement are going to go and check to see if there's any vehicles that were rented or sold or, or test driven, you know, around the time of the incident. And or does he go and borrow it? Now, he's new to the area. He has very little friends and probably the friends or the people that he does communicate with are other students that are following criminal justice. So I doubt he's going to find somebody in that realm that is going to be like, hey, you can use my car. And even if he did use somebody else's car, I think that that person 
if they didn't have knowledge about it, it would have been like, hey, you know, I let Brian use my car. I let somebody use my car this night and this horrific thing happened. I'm a, you know, if it's a college student that's trying to be in criminal justice that understands reporting things, they're probably going to go forward to the police department and say, hey, I lent this person my vehicle. So I, I really don't understand that avenue of using somebody else's car to get away with a crime. It, it's it's never made sense to me. What, what are your thoughts, Heimer? Oh, I don't either. I think that uh, he used his own personal vehicle and mm -hmm. uh, he was now, do they have images that they discovered since then of his tag? You know, I I don't know. It's, it's, it is strange to me that they weren't, they weren't able to get out of all the camera work. They weren't able to get one tag. Um, and uh, of all the service stations, banks, um, because, you know, they, they probably pulled every uh, thing they could ever pull, every intersection in business. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Plus all the uh, tag readers are out there now toll roads and things well i was going to answer the the question itself the i think it was like you said it's easy it's easy access for him um the easiest thing to do um unfortunately he, that car itself the suspected car right got did get caught on some of the cameras and it's uh, nowadays there's cameras everywhere everywhere yeah. i mean th there's a reason they call it the golden age of serial killers back in the 70s because the technology wasn't what it is now now it's a lot harder you know to do crimes but i think the, the, the easiest uh, answer is it was just easier access for him to to use his own car. Now, there was a, uh, you're right, but there was an image also there of the 1112 King Road uh, residence, the next door neighbor from the King, from their green um, camera that was taken and, and, and put out there. And there are some cars that are fairly close to that camera. You can't read the tag. You know, the Linda Lane footage as well, there's cars parked underneath that awning or in that carport area that's very close to the cameras. And because it's night, you can't read the tag. I think that may have been something that was strategic when you look at where Koberger's vehicle was spotted or the white Elantra was spotted. Majority of it, from what I understand, I mean, we don't have it all, obviously, but for what I understand is it was a lot of residential areas which would have had the same technology and cameras that uh, we've been seeing. So Lona says, how many times in trials I've seen or many times in trials I've seen evidence sealed in a paper bags after processing? Do these items degrade in the bags for future analysis if needed? And I want to add on to that. You know, law enforcement and prosecutors have talked about destroying this house because of possible chemicals and things of that nature and don't want people going in. How, how do you is that accurate as well? That, okay. that, that, uh, that can let happen? me answer the evidence seal bag first. Paper yeah. is a great it allows um, uh, the moisture to evaporate from the uh, that if you have any type of moisture in the blood or other agents, because moisture allows bacteria and a mold to um, develop and that will destroy DNA. So paper is the perfect thing to prolong DNA so it doesn't degrade. Once it's dried, it's there. And so everything has to be air dried and paper allows that. Now, as far as the chemicals in that house, through all these chemicals that CSI and Lord knows how much I've been exposed to, and I'll probably pay for it one of these days because we started way back when <laughs> we didn't fully understand all the chemicals that we used and we breathed and in these closed environments. They're, they're better prepared now, and they have the, the uh, Tyvek, and they have the personal um, uh, items that they can put on that will protect them from some of this hazardous breathing in respirators. It's changed over the years. And for them to say that they're going to have to destroy that house to protect people means that they used every avenue and every resource and every chemical that you can imagine to process that scene. So they have a, a library of evidence from in there because they, um, you have to use a lot of uh, luminol you have to lose, use a lot of uh, needle black and all the other chemicals. And I don't know what all they used in there, but uh, um, 
from that storyline, it tells me that uh, the house is a health hazard. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds that way. And now that you explain it in that manner, that does make sense. Uh, Angel D says, uh, does, does Steve think that there must be a blood trail inside 1122 when forensics were so obviously photographing items on the floor beneath the good vibes orange canvas in the living room? Uh, of 1122. There's a lot of different types of blood trails that you'll have in that house. You'll have a blood trail from one victim to the other of transfer stains that who was the first victim that received the first blow. And then whatever those injuries when we went to the second victim, because then you'll have the second victim that have a combination of first victim and their blood. Then you'll go to the third and to the fourth. And so you'll have that type of blood trail. Then you'll also possibly have, whereas if you're clothing, your weapon, um, and you have blood stains on your arms, your shoulders, your knees, your shoes, that you'll have transfer stains as you come in contact with walls, doors, floors. And so you can have a blood trail that way. You can have a blood trail if you injured yourself and the blood droplets as you move through the scene. So there's a lot of different blood trails that would uh, be within a residence. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'll go to the next one. What do you, what do you think is the reasoning on why he would go back uh, to the scene hours later? Same thing for these arsonists, man. You know, they'll go back. They won't see it. They won't see what they they won't see are the people in fear. Uh, what are, what's going on is law enforcement's doing. Are they are they amazed at my work? Uh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, trying to rationalize what these offenders and what their um, fantasy is, is was it for him to put fear in the community? Was it so that he could go by and watch these uh, victims, families um, suffer? Uh, I mean, we're talking about monsters and they're mm-hmm. what drives them and. Uh, what pleasures they wreak from their um, evil deeds. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it's, uh, there's probably 50 different ways that I, I can't even describe of, of why he may have wanted to do that. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? What do you think is the reason why he did that? I think he went to see uh, and marvel at his crime and see that what is law enforcement's doing? Where are they in the investigation? And, uh, yeah. and uh, but that, you know, that's very basic, but he may be, uh, even more evil than that and want to see the other stuff also. Yeah, same, same here, man. I think the the fact that he went back would have been for just to see the, you know, to see the they already discovered the bodies. You know, mm-hmm. maybe he gets a thrill. They get people or serial killers get thrills out of that. Or murderers, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get thrills out of, you know, mm-hmm. seeing their crimes being, um, you know, assessed and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, or either that or I mean, a lot of people are suggesting that are saying that also maybe he tried to get back. He remembered the sheath itself. But for me, I think it would have been just to go see if they already discovered the bodies. So so for me, I have to fall back on the profile of who this guy is. He's a very intelligent person. You know, he saw somebody supposedly, allegedly, possibly as he walked out of that room. So I'm thinking that the thought process there is that police were probably called fairly soon. And that there should be some sort of media coverage and he can't necessarily search, you know, um, Idaho murders or any of those things, especially if the crime hasn't been discovered. So he has to go back and actually see what's going on and and visually get a look at it. And, you know, he you know, when people say, you know, is he the inside looking? Is he Papa Rogers? I never subscribed to any of those things because I felt that this person was so intelligent that they wouldn't fall under the uh, normal, you know, red flags that are going to be there. Is he going to go back multiple times? He went back that morning. But once the uh, scene was discovered, according to the probable cause affidavit, he never went back. You know, that's something that is usually not very common in these type of situations with some of these guys. So I didn't think that he would have inserted himself into the crime in this new way of, you know, Reddit and 4chan and all these other places. But I think that that was the reason why he couldn't search it. And he had to go back to see what was going on. To his surprise, there's nothing there. And so um, that, that's my thoughts as far as the reasoning why he went back. Um, yeah, that's a very good point, because uh, 
if if law enforcement had that, he uh, woke up that morning uh, and searched uh, homicides in um, <laughs> in Idaho. That uh, yeah, that would have been a and that, that's a very good point that he knew that he couldn't do that, so he had to drive back. Uh, good observation. Thank you, thank you. And one thing that also is going to I think be one of his downfalls is he's going to have. You know, he's, he's new to the area, so he drove around. He had to have driven around that back area, the, that route that he had taken so he wouldn't get and turn around. So there's going to be evidence of that, and he's probably going to try to say that's a pattern. However, you know, he was only there for four months. 75% of the time he did it, but 25% of the time he stopped, and that 25% of the time happened after the murders. I think that's another big telltale sign. Mark asked, when collecting blood with a swab kit, does the kit require special handling after it's sealed, or can it be labeled, bagged with other evidence? Question. Oh, yeah. Everything's separated, all evidence. You know, you try to make it as uh, remote and inaccessible. When um, uh, we used, first time I took evidence to the FBI lab, uh, their standards of what they do at the FBI lab is far more restrictive than what we did. You had to take a box and you had to seal every opening, every edge, every, uh, uh, the, all corners uh, of the lid and box and everything had to be sealed with tape. Whereas with us, you simple paper bag inside a box with just the uh, lids taped one time down the middle was enough for our evidence room, but it's not for her. But uh, yes, you try to make it as where it cannot have any chance of cross-contamination as much as possible. Yeah, 100%. Um, I know when I when I, when I I joined the force, we didn't, I didn't go down any crime scene investigation stuff, but during the academy, they taught us how to do certain things. Um, you know, quick, quick story though. It just kind of popped into my head. There was one time we had a burglary and my my uh, FTO, my training officer, was um, showing me how to collect blood because the person had uh, shattered the window and climbed through and cut his arm. And <laughs> my training officer gets a swab. He swabs the blood. He's like, all right, this is how you do it. And he pulls a swab right in front of him. And it's just as he does that, a big old drop of sweat lands right on the swab. <laughs> and he's like, well, and that's not how you collect it either. <laughs> oh, I've been there. I've been there. Uh, some of the things that happen, you know, you just shake your head. And I've been in crime scenes and, and you look over there and, and, and you're in shock of what your witness is that your partner's doing. And, and then he looks at you and he gives you that nod. Oh, man, I have messed up over here big time. <laughs> and, I mean, things happen. And, that's, uh, and you try to minimize those, but things happen. I mean, we're human. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. Why not test any DNA found in that area that could suggest more than one person? Am I wrong to think that? I'm pretty sure that they tested every area. Uh, and I, I think that what you're referencing is it's not so much that they didn't test the two uh, DNA samples that are unknown to us. I think that the workup may have even been done. Who's to say that the prosecution has it? Because prosecution doesn't have Brian Koberger's workup. That was all done by the FBI. Yeah. So. And and. And the interesting point on this, and this is a, a, another great question that uh, she uh, has here, mm -hmm. that you have all this blood pattern, and this is where the blood pattern analysis of trained individuals stand out, that you have this scene and you may have, and they cast off, you may have 50 blood droplets, and uh, you may have blood spatter where certain blood droplets are uh, on the wall from some type of impact. And you're looking at this, that you have this impact, uh, stain. So we have to collect a DNA sample from it. And you may have this cast off. So we got to collect a DNA sample from it because it's two different. And then you look for the ones that have, that are outliers that have nothing to do with what you see. And those are the ones that really stand out that you have a blood trail that there's no fight over here, but we have a 90 degree blood droplet or a trail blood droplets isn't from one of the victims or shouldn't be there. Then we're looking at a, a type of a blood stain 
that can be collected that might be the offenders that he has some sustained some type of injury. And so that's where the analysis and trying to figure out uh, it's extremely difficult to do so. But you're trained to look for those identifying blood droplets that's not associated with the victims. And you want those that are indicative that, okay, this blood droplet's found 50 feet outside the house. How did it get here? It has to be here from some type of sustained injury to the offender. Are you lucky enough to find one? Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. Yeah, 100%. You know, you can't, I think people think that every square inch of that house was swabbed. And and I don't think that's the case, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would have tried to identify every pattern that they could identify, just like I said, and, and got at least one sample from each of those. I, I honestly believe that's what they would have done. And I'm hoping that's what they did. And, uh, uh but I would imagine that, yes, uh, uh, that uh, you would be able to see that once the contact was made and the homicides began with an edge weapon, that every time that you pull that weapon back and every time you uh, exert any force going after another victim, you're going to have some type of cast off. Um, Shezabanda Banda. I hope I pronounced that right. Says, Steve, do you think he put a camera in the house or been in the house uh, when everyone was out? I think the routers and stuff, um, you know, uh, what type of camera could it be? And um, there's a lot of cameras out there that, you know, but they normally either have to be cloud connected, cell phone connected, or um, uh, on some type of router. And so they would be a signature either through the cell towers or otherwise for him to be able to uh, do any of that. And um, and I don't believe, I think that would be something that they would have found uh, pretty. Uh, Good deal. Thank you, uh, Luna, for gifting one Drunk Turkey Show uh, membership. We appreciate that. Paul says, thank you for the additional information. I'm trying to understand many aspects of this case. When you think of planning, it just seems like that one would be important. Yeah, You know, I get it. You know, there's a lot of questions that come in when it comes to like, you know, this guy's intelligent, but he he left the sheath. He kept his phone. He, you know, turned his phone on. He uh, you know did all these mistakes. Like I said, when when you look at the probable cause affidavit, you know, there's a big difference when, you know, you're planning something and you're executing something, you know, the planning part has less stress, has less, everything. It's just, it's not, it's not as a stressful situation. As soon as that action goes into plan and we see, you know, after four o'clock, just in his driving habits, things were going awry. So, you know, I would assume that things would probably get even more chaotic as soon as he entered that building. Uh, I mean, even, I mean, BTK was out there for 30 years and he never committed a perfect crime. He was still messing up years into it. Oh, know? yeah. It's, it's just until technology caught up. And uh, yeah. even if he hadn't messed up with the um, um, uh, making contact with that mm-hmm. flock, uh, by now they would have found him with his uh, DNA. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Vixter asked, how close was the uh, the phone pings? Are you familiar with the uh, cast, the FBI's uh, ability to get locations on people? I um, um, I did a show on that. I can't remember uh, of what the... Uh, uh, the little uh, name of their uh, uh, self-service investigative team <laughs> was, but uh, I read up on it a little bit and it's amazing. And um, I don't know how precise it will be. I don't know how many towers are dedicated to just that in certain areas, but um, you know, um, hopefully they have enough information. So Angel D asks, is it okay to transfer evidence in the back of an open truck like the mattresses? So there has been some images that's, that appear that there's some mattresses in an open bed of a yep, truck. Yep. What are your thoughts on that transportation of that evidence? Well, when I first saw that, I had to figure out what was the timeline on this. For the fact that the records and the collection of evidence in each room would show what was the condition of the bedding. How many layers, I mean, do we have a top blanket, top sheet? bottom sheet, mattress protector, um, box spring protector. And were those items removed and collected and sealed 
and preserved for evidence. Now we have mattresses that have all these layers of clothing or protective layers on them that we don't have hair and fiber that would have been able to go through. So if everything's been removed and they've gone in there and they may have used uh, 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 forensic light sources, alternative alternate light sources, and they've sprayed it with chemicals and they've used filters and there's no more evidence there, then yes, uh, if there's box springs aren't going, you know, if they have all the best evidence and all the evidence that would be on those upper layers, the box springs and the mattress itself probably uh, has no evidential uh, value. Good deal. Well, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it, it definitely does. Thank you, Shaza Banda, for your $5 super sticker. Thank you. Um, I'll ask, what is a latent print? Okay. A um, little bit different spelling, but it's a print that uh, is uh, invisible, uh, that uh, or is hard, you know, it's left on surfaces, a latent print. Uh, uh, other prints, but you process them with powders, you make them visible and you lift them. And uh, uh, it's just a, a fingerprint that's left. Look at a glass. When you uh, take a drink of water, look at your glass under, under lighting and you'll be able to see some of those latent prints that that you left on your own drinking glasses. Yeah, 100%. Those are, yeah. Um, let me see. I'm gonna go through They're hard to see, but you can see them. They're not absolutely invisible. Steve, I had a question. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts about uh, the talk about demolishing the house. Well, like I said, I, from reading and understanding that uh, due to the, <laughs> the the chemicals and that it's a health hazard, I think that's the reason why. But I don't understand why they would do it before court. Uh, uh, why not just seal it up until... But now it may be such a health hazard that you can't even let a juror in there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is do you think it's safe for to do a, a walkthrough for the yeah. jury itself? It may. You know, they may have to ventilate it. Uh, Glass asked, and, and I know you had some experience in corrections. When it comes to a prisoner who is high profile like this, who has been good, um, charged with a multi, you know couple of murders uh, or multiple homicides, how are they handled in the prison? Are they separated from other prisoners? Um, is there a chance that you would try to put them in with somebody that you would think would be a snitch? Well, there's all kinds of strategies out there. Um, and sometimes uh, you have that these high profiles that you'll put them in certain parts of the uh, population. And you have to put them in, a, when, once they're classified, you have to put them within a classification that you can't take some extremely dangerous individual and put him in there with um, uh, people caught for jaywalking. You know, right. we have to have a separation of the masses. Um, and, uh, but, uh, uh, and then you put them in that, that there are some of these high profile uh, offenders that you put them in the right environment, you'll have people that just want to get um, a reputation. Uh, you may lose a uh, offender or someone accused of a crime. So there's a lot of solita uh, solitary confinement uh, for their own protection of some of these high profile cases. If he's intelligent and everything, he knows that whatever he says is going to get back because these guys, professional snitches and otherwise, I mean, you know, how many times we see movies and now does it occur? that you have these people that brag? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And this is going to be the last question that we take for the night. Do you think he watched the Grub Truck live stream to know where the victims were? Um, I don't. I personally don't just because I think that there would be some sort of digital evidence of that. I think there was a nine-minute time where he stopped, uh, where he's on cameras, on WSU cameras for nine minutes, or, or he passed by WSU and then came back nine minutes later. I, I think at that point, if he had some sort of like burner device that he may have done some of the stalking, you know, make sure that his victims were home. But I'm not entirely sure he actually watched the Grub Trip live stream. He would have had to have known that they were going to head that direction. What are y'all's thoughts on that? You convinced me tonight of, of something I hadn't considered that uh, he... If smart enough that uh, didn't, that's how come he had to drove by, drive back to the scene. Um, 
and um, uh, kudos for that. And um, and that falls right in line that he wouldn't watch the uh, uh, anything uh, that would link him to that community. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. What about you, Jaime? Same man. I don't think he if he went through all the trouble, you know, with um, his attire and everything. I'm sure he wouldn't go through and see the the grub truck live stream and get that on his uh, devices. You know what I mean? Well, there's that, and he also had to have knowledge that they were going yeah. there. So he would have had to have been watching them at exactly. the uh, corner like club. Yeah, 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 to an extreme extent. I, mean, I don't think there's any video or anything like that at the corner club yeah. that he could have been watching. What's well, Steve, I want to – oh, go ahead. I had one more question for Steve. And it has nothing to do it has nothing to do with the cases itself. Steve, what's your opinion on, on serial killers? Do you think they are born or they are made? I think uh, both uh, – from both ends, they come uh, – are from uh, both parts of society. Um, that um, now psychopaths um, – um, are supposedly born. Um, and, uh, but I think that you, certain individuals can be driven to that same level through, um, um, uh, certain environmental, mm-hmm. um, conditions. Um, and both of them are just as dangerous regardless. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, because I, uh, I spoke to one of the most evil individuals I ever spoke to uh, was, uh, uh, we had went to arrest him. He was out of uh, Florida and he was on parole and for a uh, homicide. And um, I asked him about it as we was taken to the jail of, of who he had uh, killed. And he said that uh, this lady had knocked on his motel room and uh, he had uh, uh, killed her. And I said, uh, you killed her for knocking on your door? You you killed a stranger? And he said, oh, no, we talked for two or three hours. And like, it was okay that he knew her. And now how she was restrained for two or three hours, I didn't ask. But, uh, um, and, but that's the mentality of some of these individuals. They're just absolutely true evil. That life means nothing to them. Yeah, 100%. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank you, Steve, for coming on. We appreciate you've had extremely expertise information that really did help us out in both cases to understand certain things from a uh, criminal scene investigative uh, perspective. If you guys aren't following Steve at True Crime Web, go check out his uh, YouTube channel. It's at True Crime Web. He has 11.3K subscribers. Let's get him up to 12K. Let let him know that uh, Drunk Turkey Show sent you all. Do you have any final words or questions for us, Steve? No, I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the awareness you bring to this uh, uh, community and uh, this platform you have. You're doing, you know, like I said, I'm honored to be here. I I never expected it. Um, And thank you for having me. And uh, absolutely, if there's anything I can ever do for y'all, never hesitate. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll have you back on for sure yet again. I'm going to end the stream. Don't go anywhere. I want to talk a little bit afterwards. You guys have a great night. We'll see you all later. Ina, send us out. Thank you, everyone. You members, members, um, Steve, of mods. course, mods, um, and whatnot, and <laughs> and um, things of that nature. If you're all drinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna say to just keep on saying it until they get drunk. <laughs> why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah, that's a good.